2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that, you that you have provided for us, that you have given us this day that we can be here together. Father, I pray now that you would speak through your word, that you would use your servant here today to speak your message, that you would move me in every way possible aside, and that we would hear from you, that we would hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would do that here today, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So a a lot of times, and I say this often uh, because the truth is that I I need to be reminded of it often, but a lot of times the people that we read about in the scriptures can be seen really less like people and and more like caricatures. Uh, They can come across as though they're sort sort of detached from reality. Sort of, sort of a 30,000 foot view, uh, just floating above the world that is, that is full of struggle and angst, completely unaware of the plight of, of the common man, like the plight of me, the, the plight of you, of the man who is forced to live with both of his feet uh, firmly planted on this ground. And so, so I fall into that sometimes. I can read through the letters of Paul and I can forget I can forget that he's human. And I know that sounds silly, but we do that with our heroes. We we do that. We we build them up and we put them on pedestals. And we forget that they walk the same paths, that they endure the same trials, that they suffer the same hardships that all of us are forced to endure. And the problem with that way of thinking, and it and maybe especially with the the Apostle Paul, the the problem with that is the Bible. And I don't know of a more raw, more vulnerable letter 
than the, than the one that we find here in 2 Corinthians. And the fullest expression of Paul's life and his ministry, his real authentic ministry, is found in the words of our Savior in verse 9. Our verse of the year, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so what we want to consider here this morning is that when our Lord and Savior spoke these words to Paul, they were not the words. They were not the answer that he had sought. And what we need to know is that if Jesus is telling Paul in principle that his grace is sufficient for him, it's because we are in need. It's because we are in need of the grace that only Jesus can provide. And what we see here in verse 9 is that these words were the response of Jesus to a request from Paul. We're told in verse 8, you can look there, in verse 8, that Paul had pleaded with the Lord to remove what he calls a thorn in the flesh. It says there, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Okay, so that was the request. That's what Paul wants. He wants for this thorn, whatever that thorn may be, he wants it to go away. He wants it to be removed. And I love how he says this. He he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Three times. I love that Paul has kept a record in his mind. In case you forgot, I've asked you about this. Uh, He has begged. He's begged God to take it away. Another translation says concerning this, that's the thorn. It says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. You, You get a sense of the heart of the man here. And it's not a guarded heart. Like, we need to remember that this is, this is a moment of unprotected thought. We need to remember that this is a public letter. It was written, this is what it says, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Okay, so the, an entire region. And so Paul is basically standing in the pulpit and he's exposing something of his heart before the people. This is Paul, this is him laying it out there. He's not not standing in his own strength and his own sufficiency. He's exposed now in his weakness and his dependency. I remember as a kid watching uh, the old Adam West Batman television show. It It was that and Dukes of Hazzard for me, so you can make your own judgment call on that, but... That was what I had to work with. And, and, and I remember on that show uh, that Commissioner Gordon, right? Commissioner Gordon had, had a red phone in his office. And that was the bat phone. That was, that was the direct line to the one who could, who could come and make everything right. Who could catch the bad guys. Who could protect the weak and the vulnerable. And so something would happen, right? Something some villain would do something, and, and, and he'd pick up the phone. He didn't even have to dial. It was that high tech, right? It was the bat phone. And, and Batman would show up, you know, in his, like, in, in his like, spandex, and he would save the day. Now, as a child, okay, and this is just how my imagination works, so I don't, I'm not projecting this onto you, but I imagined, I imagined that pastors had sort of a direct line to God. And so if you really needed something, if if there was trouble, like if there was pain, if there was anything in your world 
that was wrong, that needed to be righted. The, the pastor was the one with the bat phone. That's who you went to. They were the ones who knew the number to dial, at least. And so someone, follow me here, someone like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, now surely he who had heard the audible voice of God. Remember in our passage, up in verse 2, he talks about how 14 years before, 14 years before this, he had been caught up to the third heaven. Okay, that's the dwelling place of God. In Hebrew thought, uh, there were three heavens. There was the heaven that we call the sky, right? That's the dominion of the birds of the air, the birds of the heavens. Okay, that's the first heaven. The second would be what we call space. It's the, it's the place that's distant. It's the dwelling place of the sun and the moon and the stars. It's the final frontier, right? It's, and, and all that, okay? It's distant. Uh, the second heaven is distant, but it's still visible. And then there's the invisible heaven. That's the great beyond. That's the dwelling place of God. It's the invisible dwelling place of the creator and sustainer of all things. And it's, it's real, but it's not here. And down in verse 3, Paul, Paul calls it paradise. Okay, Paul had been there. Now, he didn't fully understand what had happened, and I love how honest he is. Look, look back at that for a second. We'll come, we'll come back to the bat phone, I promise. But look back at verse 2 again. He says of this journey, he says, Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. You see, he can't explain it. And listen, he so cannot explain it that he says he can't explain it two different times. He just knows it happened. He was in the presence of the Lord. And, and I love this because it flies in the face of all the sort of pop cultural, uh, contemporary accounts of people going to heaven and meeting with their family members and stuff, as if that would be your first priority in heaven. Yeah, isn't that a strange thing? Isn't it strange to think that someone might be in the presence, might be in the presence of the Lord and instead choose to meet with their grandfather that they'd never met? That's strange to me. And the reality, the reality is Paul doesn't do that at all. He doesn't describe a whole lot of it. In fact, I don't even bother to ask him how it happened. Only God knows that. Now, now surely this man, okay, this man who'd been caught up to heaven, had heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter, this one who had experienced the surpassing greatness of the revelations, while he was in heaven, surely this man would have direct access to God. Surely he would be able to pick up the bat phone and connect. And the reality is that he did. Okay, he had the access. He put his petition, he put his request, his plea before the Lord. Remember, three times, remove this thorn from my flesh. But, and, and this is important, God didn't do that. He didn't remove it. And again, we don't, we don't know what the thorn was. There's, there's a lot of speculation. Some of it's solid exegetical speculation. And some of it's just pure conjecture over what the thorn was. Now, I, I like how Douglas Kelly, he's a, he's a professor up at uh, 
Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. I love the way he says it. He, he says, We do not know exactly what it was, yet some commentaries seem to know more than Paul himself did. <laughs> and, and, and I think he's right. I think he's right. You see, the thorn is not the point. The point is that even in this moment of raw, authentic, unfiltered honesty, Paul is being reminded by our Lord that it is his grace that is sufficient. It is his power that is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul, real man, real man with real feet on the real ground, had pleaded three times for the thorn to be removed. And it hadn't happened. And I'm guessing you can relate to that. You know, maybe it's some trial. Some trial in your life that you just can't seem to escape. Maybe it's something in your story. Something in your past that has taken up residency in your heart. And it causes you angst. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's a sin that you can't seem to overcome. Maybe it's that lust. Can we, we can be specific here for a moment. Maybe it's, maybe it's that greed in your heart. Maybe it's your anger. For someone in here, maybe it's your laziness. Maybe it's the laziness that seems to keep you in spiritual shackles. Taking the context of this passage, maybe it's your pride. Or it might be some form of physical hardship. One of the theories that I thought was interesting, and again, pure conjecture, uh, with regard to Paul's thorn was that it was his eyes. Perhaps the Damascus Road experience with the risen Christ and the flash of light had left him with permanent eye damage. And we don't know that. And I think it's a reach, okay? But, but I also know that the body, the body affects the soul and the soul affects the body. And so maybe it's, maybe it's some physical hardship in your life right now. Whatever the thorn is, whatever the thorn was for Paul, Jesus did not take it away. And we don't know why. Now maybe he, maybe he did one day. But at this point, at this point, Paul's still stuck with it. That was a pun. Did you get that? Sorry. It's really lame. And that means that regardless of what the thorn is in your flesh, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever hardship, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's Paul's boast. That was the war cry of his heart. It's that Christ can overcome. Christ can overcome your trial. Remember, he's the one. Jesus is the one who took the scroll of Isaiah. This is a story in Luke 4. He was in his hometown of Nazareth, and he took the scroll of Isaiah, and he assumed the role of Isaiah 61 by reading this. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is who Jesus is. His is a grace that is sufficient. It's a liberating and healing grace. And that's a present tense reality. In fact, that's the way it's reflected here in the language. It's sufficient now. Presently, 
in this moment, we, we tend to think of grace as something that was sufficient. My natural inclination when I think of grace is to think of something that was in a moment sufficient for my salvation. Right? We think of it that way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved past a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And that's certainly true here. Okay, Paul's not undoing that. But he's, but he's not just talking about saving grace. He wants us to know that the grace of God in Christ is presently sufficient. It's presently enough. Paul expressed this to the church in Rome by asking the rhetorical question, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever hardship, His grace is sufficient, is sufficient for you. And it's a grace that's infused, okay? It, it's, in, it's empowered. Here's the turn. It's infused by the very power of God. And that's a power that is made perfect in weakness. You know, Paul had plenty of reasons to boast. If you remember, uh, Paul had all the external markings that people looked for in his culture. He lays it out there in Philippians 3. It, you'll recall this. He says in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen, Paul had the pedigree, okay? And beyond that, beyond even all of that, he had been given a unique revelation of the glory of God that we will not enjoy until the life to come. But if we track with him in this passage, we see how reluctant he was to boast of what he had seen. And the thorn was a reminder to him of his humanity. He says himself that it was, it was to keep me from becoming conceited. That's to keep him, to keep Paul, from becoming overly exalted. He understood that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Further, he says, I, I count everything as lost, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So even the revelations... Even the visions, even his actual journey up into paradise, they are nothing apart from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Just look at how he identifies himself in verse 2 here in our passage. Look at that. He says, I know a man in Christ. That's his identity. That's who he is. By the way, this is just a side note. The fact that he goes third person in this passage just demonstrates further his reluctance to claim these things. He doesn't want to get into a measuring contest to figure out who's the best. He doesn't want that. He identifies himself just as a man in Christ. He says in verse 6 that he refrains from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He isn't seeking to be a legend. Paul is not about building up his name. It's not what he's about. 
And his very next words bring us right back to the answer that he got from the Lord when he asked for the thorn to be removed. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul says this, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, he's telling the church, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it, but I know the one who can. Paul's not the one who can fix it, but he can point you to the one who can. Through his weakness, he can point to the one who can come and fix it. Paul has the red phone in his office. He can call upon the one who can, who can break every chain, who can right every wrong, the one who can heal every wound. Remember that our, our God is the God of Psalm 147. He's, he's the one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And then the psalmist breaks into doxology, which is beautiful. And he says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. And what we should know is that if Paul can call upon the Lord, if Paul can call upon the Lord, we can call upon the Lord. You see, you, you also have the red phone. And by God's grace, it doesn't call up some weirdo dressed in spandex, right? There's no magic or secret code to grant you access. There is only union with Christ. That's the access. That is the direct line to the throne of the living God. And this is part of the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. It's that the weak, it's that the weak can be made strong. It's that the poor are made to be rich. It's that blind can see and dead are brought to life. It's that you and I, by grace, through faith, can be one with Christ. Jesus demonstrated this paradox for us on the cross. We have the table uh, set before us that reminds us of the work of salvation that he has done on our behalf. We have his blood poured out for us. We have his body torn for us. His grace is sufficient for us and his power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, right? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, God wants your weakness. Like, you need to believe that. He wants your weakness. You, you need to believe that because your strength isn't enough anyway. And so you can give that over to him. He wants you to give it to him. He wants you to turn over to him your sufferings. He wants your doubts. Do you know that? He wants your doubts. He wants your inadequacies. He wants your failures. God wants your fears. He wants you to learn to boast in your weakness. Because... Because he is even able to save you. 
because his power is made perfect in weakness. Just as we read in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, Jesus didn't stop working at the cross. He's not unemployed right now. He's not just waiting for somebody to bring him a job to do. He's there presently, interceding for you, for your doubts, your fears, your hesitations, your sin. This one's mine. He's a busy guy if you know your own heart. Your weakness, your inadequacy, all of that points to his power and his sufficiency. That's what the man of Christ desires. It's that we point to the one who can save us to the uttermost. We point to the sufficiency of Christ. We point to our God who reigns in power now. You know, know, that would make... That would make a great resolution for this year, really for this, for this life. That we might become a people who boast in the grace and power of our God, who was, who was even able to save a, a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now... But now I see. You see, that's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sufficient grace. 